If you guys are nearly ready, we'll get going with episode 164 on the 11th of September 2018. And God, that guy, he's back at the window again. Oh my God. Suburban Eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned. Some seem to have multiple lifespans. A few were once thought to be extinct in the region. Others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today... We observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. He's he's gone now. We'll we'll continue with the podcast. Dear listener, welcome back. Episode 164. It's the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. We talk about news, politics, changes in culture, our society, what's going on in the world. Can it be explained? What's it, what does it all mean? That's what we're on about. And my name is Trevor. I'm the Iron Fist. With me, Scott, the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. How are we all? And tonight I'm drinking, courtesy of Trevor, a Burley Brewing Company Twisted Palm Tropical Pale Ale. It's quite nice, actually. So It's not yeah, bad. Not mm, bad. Mm. A hint of passion fruit in there? <laughs> I don't know. There's just a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of something there that's just a little bit different. Yeah, so there could, cool. it could be passion fruit, cool. yes. Yes. And Paul the 12th man. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Scott. G'day, listeners. Mm. Paul, if, you, if you're new to the podcast, uh, originally it was just Scott and myself, and, and Paul chipped in when one of us was unavailable, and he's since become... A permanent member, but he was given the moniker of the twelfth man as as that sort of the twelfth man in a cricket team who comes in and uh, and fills in if players are injured. But his his main preference is the sport of tennis. Really, he doesn't like cricket at all. And uh, so some sort of um, wild card would have been better for you, perhaps. And we'll be talking about tennis because the Serena Williams affair fascinates me on a number of levels. We're going to be talking about the left eating itself. We're going to be talking about Serena Williams, as I mentioned. We'll be banging on about Scott Morrison and the evangelical nutters around him and a few other bits and pieces. We've got a message from Land and Hardbottom <laughs> to enjoy. We've had some great little bits from some patrons. So sit back and relax as we take you through the week that was. And, gentlemen, we're going to start with poor old Adam Bant. Um he was off to the off to the theatre. He was going to watch Bangara's opening night of Dark Emu. You know, a harmless little bit of interpretive dance, one would have thought. And he's obviously in the foyer, looking forward to it. He snapped a selfie with him and his wife. He's posted it on Facebook with the words, "Quote with hot wife at Bangara's opening night of Dark Emu." You would have thought. And there's a picture of him with his hot wife, and they're looking happy as Larry about to watch a good show. Mm. You would have thought that that was fairly innocuous, but the left erupted into furor, and they came out with 
a whole bunch of comments. I'll read some of them. From Catrid Stave. Poor judgment. Women in the public eye are sexually objectified enough, and you are alienating your progressive support base by contributing to that. Be more measured in your social media posts. This is not a public statement. It is a private one. Have a firm word with your social media advisor or hire one if you are in danger of misjudged Trumpish outbursts like this. For God's sake. (laughs) And these comments get plenty of likes. Do you think that was a sarcastic comment? No. No, This person was deadly serious. It sounds almost too deadly serious, doesn't it? But it's not the only one. Max Sargent. Does your wife have a name? Is she only defined by her relationship to you and her perceived attractiveness? I thought we were better than this. No. Sorry, you're greens. Get over it. Well, my favourite comment, if I may, was from Jared Hale. Mm -hmm. Green voters approved caption. My consensual domestic life partner who's facially aesthetically satisfactory is with me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This one from Christopher James. Bant managed to expose the absolute unhinged insanity of Green supporters better than any right-winger ever could with a single post. I'm very impressed. Yes. See? I mean, it's, mm. this is the whole point. Like, you've got Bant, who's a member of the House of Representatives, but they are surrounded by an army of lunatics. Mm. And, you know, Catred, you know, she was clearly the, the most unhinged of the whole lot. Anyway. Catred or hatred? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Catred, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> His wife got on there, Claudia Perkins, and said, it's okay, everyone, I'm completely fine with this post. It was just a reference to how hot we are for each other, even after 11 years together. Wow. But that wasn't enough to stop him. And uh, here's one from Mandy Damien Elwood. What an odd post after your feminist post in recent days. Sounds like you are objectifying your wife for public consumption. Be proud of her, call her lovely or intelligent or even beautiful. But why promote her in this way in public? Undignified, disappointing. <laughs> oh, my God. It's incredible. It's amazing, isn't it? That's, <laughs> Look, I, this, that's I, why I said, you know. I'm just waiting for Trevor to refer to his uh, hot wife yeah. because, <laughs> you know, I think she's pretty all right. <laughs> She's all right if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. What a, what a world we're in. What a world Indeed. we're in. It's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. I mean, he should have just got away with it. You know, there should have just been several likes on his on his comment and that should have been it. But instead, it, un- it, un- it unhinged a whole lot of people who well, just look, lost it. Well, look, some good may come of it. You know, the Greens may, in fact, get around to compiling their glossary of, you know, uh, appropriate uh, language to use in all public statements. Who who, who knows? Who who knows what it will lead to? It's the world's gone mad. But Hmm. we're going to be talking a little bit, well, a lot about identity um, and this sort of thing. And there was a very interesting clip that I'm going to play from... Tonightly. So that's the show on ABC. ABC that was cancelled now. Like it's finished mm. kaput. 
they actually put out some good stuff. Yeah, especially towards the end, they really put the boot into the. Yeah, yeah. maybe in their death throes, they felt that they could just go for it and not worry about Although it. Although the um, the guy that um, you know the the front man for that show, I I read something by him where he basically said, "Look, you know, we're we're sad the show's been cancelled, but we he said he was very very grateful for the opportunity." To have ever appeared on the ABC because he loves the ABC and oh, there we go. You know, yep. so he was fairly magnanimous about it mm-hmm. and hoping for another job in two years' time Maybe. with another show. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this clip is a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worthwhile listening to, and um, it's instructive for the things that we're going to be talking about on on this podcast. So uh, sit back for a couple of minutes and have a listen to this. Oh, hello there. I'm left-wing. You can probably tell from the cultural Marxism coming out of my face. But let's not waste too much time pointing out that these pantomime villains are bad. The more interesting question is who is to blame for making neo-Nazis look like the new rock and roll punk? And the answer is, unfortunately, partly us. Don't get me wrong, I love left-wing values and hope that one day they'll win out across the globe. It's just that on that day, I don't want any actual left-wing people to be alive to see it happen. Why? Because <laughs> we're fucking useless. I mean, first of all, Brexit. What the fuck happened there? Well, uh, the left employed a cunning two-prong uh, strategy by, one, uh, calling every Leave voter a racist, and two, uh, failing to put forward a positive case uh, for Remain. Uh, right. Weird how not engaging 17 million Brits and slacking them off instead didn't win them over. But at least yelling racist online made us feel good about ourselves and had no bad, long-lasting side effects. The UK has voted to leave the European Union. Ah, shit. Well, don't worry. <laughs> After Brexit, we learnt our lesson. And then the US election came along and we thought, nah, let's just do that again. You could put... Half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Not surprisingly, the left's campaign of vote for us, you pieces of shit, didn't pan out so well. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. But don't worry, it's not just the big battles. The left are totally useless on a small scale as well. This is largely thanks to the foul brick of nightmares we all have sewn into our hands, which means we're also bleeding woke all the time that we find something new to be offended by every few seconds. To find out more about why this new outraged left is losing ground, I sat down with moral philosopher and future doxing victim, Dr. Tim Dean. It's the case these days that a lot of people on the left see any kind of criticism of their methods uh, as a criticism of their goals. And that makes the kind of discourse and the dialogue that we're having um, really uh, aggressive and quite corrosive as well. So why didn't calling Trump supporters racist and sexist help the Democrats win the election? I think that if you call a bunch of people sexist or racist, but they don't believe that they are sexist or racist, um, all it's going to do is get them to rally around their own tribe and gather together and fight back. And that's exactly what we saw. I mean, how would you feel if I said you're entrenched in white privilege? I was going to raise that, actually, because we are two, two white men. Traditionally, the left were in favour of things like, you know, world peace, equality for all, lots of lovely things. How is it the left is taking that sort of utopia and packaging it in a way that makes me want to swallow my own face? The way some people on the left have been thinking has changed. They're looking for any kind of signal that underneath you're actually a write-off. And so one slip of language, one slip of behaviour, and that shows that you're in the bad camp 
and you're just suddenly excluded. So the left lack nuance, they're too reactive to criticism and morally puritanical. Anything else? Well, why don't we talk about identity politics? Yeah, let's talk about that. The goals are absolutely noble, but one of the problems of identity politics is it breaks off these groups into these silos, into these kind of knowledge silos, and it stifles the possibility of engagement between those kinds of silos. So Tim, I want the left to win. You've got a beard. You obviously want the left to win as well. What can we do to stop losing the big battles and start generating some genuine systemic change? We've got to move beyond words. We've got to get practical. We can join a political party, even better, start a new political political party. Basically, just stop being some outraged virtue signaling prats. I reckon they've been listening to this podcast. I we've, think so. We've, yes. we've covered all those issues, not, not in such a funny way, but mm. yeah. yeah. Well, I thought that guy hit the nail right on the head. Don't be such, out, what do you call, virtue signaling podcast? Uh, Prats, you know. Yeah, and just insulting and seeing the worst in everybody all the time. That was a real eye-opener about the whole Brexit thing where they just said, oh, you know, well, we didn't engage with them, we just just called them racist. And then you think about it, you think to yourself, that's exactly what the Remain campaign did to, Mm. which made no sense whatsoever. And the same in the US election. Exactly. I mean, yeah, basket of deplorables. That was was ridiculous. appalling gaffe, wasn't it? It was. Even if she thought it privately. To say it publicly, she just lost, you know, in, a, in an instant, millions, millions of votes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So insult people and, they're, and just not gonna, they're just yeah. not going to listen to you. Exactly. They're going to turn straight off. Yeah. But the left are so quick to to just levy, throw insults at people. Mm. Even their own leaders, like Adam Bant, they're, <laughs> well, we they're ready to, to fire yeah, missiles. Exactly. And as you nothing. said at the beginning, they're eating their own. Yes. Mm. They really are. Yeah. So um, so more on that. Um, more you, on? Uh, no, we, Did you call someone no, a moron? Well, about to perhaps. Uh, way back in the early days, we started off with a little sporting segment which was looking initially at um, our friend... Kyrgios. What's his first name? Nick. Uh, Nick, Nick Kyrgios, yeah. And we started a segment which was called... You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! <laughs> and, and that was for sporting people behaving badly. Yes. And boy, oh boy. Have we and got... we all recognised the voice. <laughs> John McEnroe. In, yes, the, in... the, the, the classic tennis brat. Indeed. I find the Serena Williams uh, fiasco... Uh, very in- interesting, very interesting. So, was that? So, let's just give the facts and then take it from there. But she's playing in the final, she's losing, mm. and she's trying desperately to win. I give her that. But uh, her coach um, gives signals in the stand, and the referee says, Warning, Mrs. Williams, coaching. Now, she says she didn't see the coaching and that she's not a cheat, but it doesn't matter. If the coach does it, then that's a warning penalty. And um, and the coach admitted later that, in fact, he had been coaching. So that's the end of the matter. It's a legitimate warning to give, and it's done every day of the week in tennis. And sure, they don't get pinged all the time, but they get pinged often enough. So, so it started off just as a warning. So, so that's a warning for coaching. Right, so, so the, had, had he have stopped, it would have been over with, would it? Correct. Yeah. So then uh, later on, uh, she throws a racket into the ground and breaks it. 
And because that's a second offence, it's an automatic penalty. There's no, absolutely no discretion for the umpire. And breaking a racket, everybody knows it's it's worth one mark. So, yes. so if you, for example, you'll sometimes see where they might whack the racket on the ground and if it's towards the end of the game, they'll play with a broken racket yes. to disguise the fact if that If it's they, just a bit cracked, they yes. often do because they know if they then walk back to the, to the seat to change rackets, yep. that's a point penalty. Indeed. So they will so often... it's well known. Mm. And, and, Scott, just to get back to your point, if he had stopped coaching, that would have been the end of the matter. It's not like that. Any kind of uh, offence against the rules... Um, uh, invites a penalty point, and okay. and it, gotcha. it, so the, the, it progressively the escalates. So the warning, so you get a warning, and then, then it's a point that. penalty, gotcha. and the third offence is a game penalty. Right. This is the beauty of the internet. You can actually just Google WTA rules, and <laughs> there they are: code of conduct section Roman numeral XVI. So that's I mean uh, sixteen, code of conduct section three. Uh, point penalty schedule, first offence, warning, second offence, point penalty, third and subsequent offences, game penalty. And so Serena Williams, after throwing a racket into the ground, uh, second offence, lost a point, and then she gets into a big argument with the referee and um, calls him a thief. And that's a serious (laughs) allegation. Like... (laughs) Lots of times tennis players will get into arguments with the referee saying you're wrong, you've made a mistake, you know, put your glasses on or whatever. Or you can't be serious. But, yes. <laughs> but calling somebody a thief is is questioning their integrity. Indeed. Uh, and they're basically you're saying you're a cheat. It's It's a big step from arguing over, you know, really there's very little in tennis for umpires to sort of, talk about now the main one is um if there's a miscall by a linesman would you have got to the ball do we replay the point or not um that's the sort of about the only thing left for central umpires so most of the disputes gone out of it so she was you know if she had just shut her mouth uh she would have been fine but she couldn't help herself so um at the end of it all in the uh uh her argument then with the umpire, part, you know, she's ranting and raving, but one of her arguments was, I'm, um, I'm, um, I have a daughter and I set a good example for my daughter and I wouldn't, I wouldn't cheat. <laughs> but she would insult an umpire who's paid to yes. you know, run the tennis match she's supposedly playing. So, so she's played the identity card in her argument. But her argument for not being penalised is she has a daughter, that she's a mother, would would Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal or, or, or ever have said, let me begin by saying I have four children. <laughs> yeah. It makes, you know, that whole thing, oh, I'm, a, I'm a mother, I've got a daughter, mm-hmm. that means nothing. No, you but, know. It, but it's this recourse to identity. Exactly. Her, it, this is the thing about people can't structure an argument mm. these days. They yeah. just have to... 
put forward their identity and victim status and say, oh, there you go, that's that's an end of story. Yeah, you watch programs on TV and as an Aboriginal man, I would like to say, or as a woman, I think, or as a, uh, you know, bisexual, I I object to that remark or it's ridiculous. Mm. I'm just going to play a little bit from her post-match interview here. The fact that I have to go through this is just an example for the next person that has emotions and that want to express themselves and they want to be a strong woman. And they're going to be allowed to do that because of today. Maybe it didn't work out for me, but it's going to work out for the next person. I can't sit here and say I wouldn't say he's a thief because I thought he took a game from me. But I've seen other men call other umpires several things and... I'm here fighting for women's rights and for women's equality and for all kinds of stuff. And for me to say thief and for him to take a game, it made me feel like it was a sexist remark. I mean, like how he's never took a game from a man because they said thief. That's because no man's ever called him a thief. Yeah. That's why, Serena. How was it a sexist remark? Which because he's a man. So oh, it was because necessarily... he's a man, it's a sexist remark. It if necess- it had been a female umpire, it wouldn't have been a sexist remark. Correct. But you know no. what? Who was on the other side of the net? A Who? woman. Exactly. Another woman, a very modest hard hard working young woman who was achieving her lifelong ambition i hope she appreciated serena's efforts to fight for women's yes. rights you know of the course. poor, poor yeah, victim that course, serena is of course she appreciated the, appreciated her efforts she beat her but appreciate the the verbal this this claim that she was fighting for women's rights on the center court of the us open Earning, I don't know what the winner gets, but it's well over a million dollars. And the runner-up probably gets close to a million dollars as well. She was fighting for money and status. You know, in the the tennis world, she already has very high status. But if she was fighting for women's rights, I'm fighting for nuclear disarmament (laughs) right here, right now, okay, everyone? What an appalling, uh, what an appalling behaviour. Just appalling. But it, it, but it made no sense listening to it, did it? Now, she's got form. So in case you didn't know. She has lots of form. Back in 2009 against Kim Clijsters in the semifinals, she, she's blown a gasket after being called for a foot fault. It's on her second serve, which means she faces match point. She waves her racket at the female line judge and says, I swear to God, I'm fucking going to take this fucking ball and shove it down your fucking throat. You hear that? I swear to God. <laughs> so much shit. So much for women's rights. <laughs> Fighting for women's rights. Now, of course, if it had been a male linesman, then the call would have been, you know, misogynist mm. against her. She would have been fighting. Her statement there would have been fighting for women's rights. That's right. But on that occasion, it was a female lines person. And then on another occasion against uh, Sam Stoza when she was losing again, um, she hit the ball and yelled, come on, before Stoza had a chance to hit her shot. And the umpire, again, a female umpire, correctly awards the point to Stoza and a petulant Williams tells the umpire, I am not giving her the game. You're nobody. You're ugly on the inside. And at the next change of ends, she shouts at the umpire, you're totally out of control. You're a hater and unattractive inside. What a loser. <laughs> this is 
This is the form. She said that to a female umpire. Yeah, yes. But no, hang on. I thought she was fighting for women's rights. Exactly. Well, she was at that point, but she wasn't back then. <laughs> exactly. But, but that threat against the lines person was really, I thought, totally out of line. Totally. You would have thought all of it's pretty compelling, but the left have come out in favour of Serena. A number of people have. So I've got a link to an article here by Sally Jenkins, and this is in the Sydney Morning Herald, 9th of September, and the, uh, the, the umpire's name was Ramos. So she said here, Ramos took what began as a minor infraction and turned it into one of the nastiest and most emotional controversies in the history of tennis, all because he couldn't take a woman speaking sharply to him. Huge assumption there, isn't it? So this writer seems to think she can get inside Ramos's head and know exactly what he was thinking at the time. Mm. Uh, it says here... Um, Ramos made himself the chief player in the women's final. He marred Osaka's first Grand Slam and one of Williams' last bids for all-time greatness. Over what? A tone of voice? Male players have sworn and cursed at the top of their lungs, hurled and blasted their equipment into the shards and never been penalised as Williams was in the second set. They do get penalised. The point is that they haven't had two warnings beforehand. Mm, so, exactly. You know, you, and they get, they get warnings... And if they continue, they get a penalty and they face a fine afterwards. It's ludicrous to say that men have been getting away with this. Yeah. The whole point is they stop and they don't keep going like she did. Because they know that. And they don't compound it. And if they break a racket, they hide it mm. so that, they, um, that so they're not on a warning. Um, uh, he said here, talking about Ramos again, but he couldn't take it. He wasn't going to let a woman talk to him that way. A man, sure. Ramos has put up with worse from a man, blah, blah, blah. But he hasn't. He's taken on Nadal. He's taken on other people, you know, men players, big-name male players. Anyway, as I've been looking at different articles, I've found that, so in response to that article, it's an Australian Sydney Morning Herald, the comments section, basically everybody's saying, are you nuts? to the writer of this article, like, that's not what happened and you're mad. But when I've looked at articles in, say, the New York Times or American ones where somebody has come out and defended Serena Williams in in a similar way, 50-50 or, you know, plenty of support for Serena Williams. So I think Australians take a different view of this to Americans Mm. in the public, just on my little personal survey of comments. You know, if you want to throw some sort of reason for that, I think Australians probably have a greater respect for the rules than the Yanks do. And the Americans, despite their protestations that Australians are racist, I don't think we are racist. I don't think that her colour ever entered anyone's mind. They just saw an athlete behaving badly, mm. and they said, "No, she's she copped it. She should cop it on the chin and move on." Mm. Whereas the Yanks, they see this black woman and they think to themselves, "Oh, we've got to feel sorry for her because she's black." You know, blah blah mm. blah blah blah. Makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, Curios is a man of colour. I don't know what his ethnic background is, but he's got something is he? going on there. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, he's 
Kyrgios is Greek, is it? But he's certainly quite dark-skinned. But there's never any talk about racism in... His mother is something, isn't she? Non-European, I think. Or at least partly. His his race just doesn't come into it. It's about his behaviour. His behaviour. And, you know, I think a lot of Australians are plainly embarrassed about his behaviour on court. I I certainly Hmm. cringe sometimes when I see how he behaves. Yes. so As um, much as I admire his skill with the tennis racket, he's a phenomenal athlete, but... He's just uh, he just lacks maturity and yeah. composure. Yeah. And so, so, so anyway, crikey, Sydney Morning Herald, sympathetic articles for Serena Williams. What did they yeah. say in the Australian? I, the, I I can't recall exactly, but I didn't. I'm pretty sure there were no sympathetic articles, yeah. unless they were quoting Billie Jean King, who was sympathetic. Oh, yeah. was she? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Why? Because she's hooked up on identity. So because she, she, for years, struggled as a gay woman um, and so she's on the side of identity politics. Yeah, see, that's... So, mm, yeah. Anyway, that, I... That would be why. Mm. Anyway, uh, Serena Williams, did you know she's a Jehovah's Witness? Yes. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. There you go. She's a J-dub, huh? She is, yeah. So... Yeah. Um, Although I don't think she lives a traditional Jehovah's Witness lifestyle. Oh. Jehovah's Witness. Mm. Yes, interesting, isn't it? Because they're usually very prissy people who uh, dress very conservatively and have very, very dull lives. Well, no birthdays. Don't celebrate exactly. birthdays. Yeah. Apparently no oral sex. Did you know that? No, they, they wouldn't dispense with that, surely. According to this article from the, from that, that, from the sun, so that must be right. Oh. <laughs> Forbidden from making friends with others, uh, believe Satan runs the world. So uh, what's Wikipedia saying? Jehovah's Witnesses. A, ah. a millenarian restorationist Christian denomination with non-Trinitarian beliefs. Hmm. So the easiest part about that is they're Christian, but they don't believe in the, the, the Father, Trinity. Son, the Holy yeah. Ghost, Trinity. It's just all too difficult. Yeah. Uh, Too restor- complex for them, perhaps. Restorationist in the sense that they're back to the basics of early apostolic history and millenarian in that they sense that there's a major transformation coming mm. of some sort. So yeah. um, they're a nasty group because when you fall out with them, you get ostracised mm. and uh, you have to find a whole new friendship group. You they get shunned. do, mm. yeah. It is very cruel what they do. They mm. do actually shun you. Yeah, they split families, yeah. split mm. parents from children. It's really mm. cruel what they do. Mm. Husbands from wives, mm. husbands from husbands, dare I say. <laughs> Well, I, I don't, don't think, think homosexuality is as legitimate. Oh, that's right. They don't approve of if, if you were gay, no. Yeah. Yeah. Final thing on this Serena Williams is a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> you sent this to me at the last minute. I wasn't aware of it until oh, a couple of hours ago, yeah. 12th Man. Did you enjoy it? So, I saw the cartoon. I thought it was hilarious. Anyway, yeah. So it's a cartoon by Mark Knight published in Rupert Murdoch's Herald Sun, and it's an image of Serena Williams stomping on a broken tennis racket and the umpire um, talking to the other player and saying, "Um, can you just let her win? (laughs) (laughs) 
So it's it's quite funny in that yeah. sense. Um, See, but it's come under fire because of the portrayal of Serena Williams, and it's a caricature, so heavily bodied black woman with frizzy hair, big mouth, big lips. Big everything. Wearing the uh, outfit sort of that she was wearing at the time and pulling an awful face and stomping on a tennis racket. And that, well, 12th man. Thoughts? Uh, Look, I thought it was a terrific cartoon because, you know, cartoons are supposed to sort of distill the essence of the moment, aren't they, or of the people being presented. And it distilled her perfectly. She was engaged in a an outrageous dummy spit in the you know with a, an audience of millions watching and uh i thought it was i thought it was quite um what's the word um restrained <laughs> actually what did you think it's confronting because it does have a sort of a uh, well i think they use the word sambo in this article it has a sort of a sambo element to it's Painted it as a, it's painted. But have a look at it. the The lips aren't painted exaggeratedly white. Um, no, you know, like the the old depictions or some of the old depictions. But look, I saw someone comment that um, anyone anyone finding that cartoon humorous are are ignorant and racist because they should they should be aware no matter what their age is they should be aware of the of the history of uh african slavery in america and and all the subsequent uh social uh ugliness that 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 arose from that you know how 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 is everybody supposed to be aware of the the vast you know sort of um expanse of American social history. How are people supposed to be aware of that and why shouldn't they laugh if an image provokes laughter? Mm. I don't know. Look, I think, you know, cartoons are meant to be caricatures. Obviously. When it's of real people, like political cartoons. and, And so features are exaggerated and, you know, there's thousands of millions of pictures of, say, politicians who are made to look fat and balding, you know, more so than what they are and uglier than what they are. Mm. Like it happens all the time. Yes. People are are portrayed in a very unflattering light Indeed. physically. So if you're a public figure, you're fair game for being portrayed in an ugly fashion just because that's, you're a public figure. Yeah. So... I don't think that this has poked fun at her blackness in any way. It's poked fun at her tantrum. It's clearly the object of the of the comic. Um, and, you know, if, if you can't do that, then you can't do any political cartoons, basically. Mm. Yes, indeed. In fact, it's right here, isn't it, under the cartoon, the one that I was thinking of. So unfortunate that this is your response. This is directed to the cartoonist, I think, and without consideration for the painful historical context of such imagery and how it can support biases and racism today. Why wouldn't a human being care about that? Huh? Anyway. Look, uh, the cartoonist, to his credit, stuck up for himself and said, look, you know, 
It was was supposed to be humorous. Yeah, he said it was it was about poking fun at her tantrum Mm. and not anything to do with her race. Exactly. And that's clear on the face of the cartoon. And those Mm. non-racists among us Mm. saw it exactly that way, didn't Mm -hmm. they? I mean, I didn't. The the word race didn't come into my head at all, unless I'm. I should be checking my privilege, should I? Well, it's like I said earlier, I just think we're basically colourblind. Yeah. You know, I, I think that we didn't see a black woman. We saw, we saw Serena, Serena Williams. Williams behaving badly. And if she is a black woman, yeah, why wouldn't you draw her as a black woman? Mm. Mm. <laughs> maybe he was. Maybe he should it's, have drawn her as a Caucasian woman. Yeah, then he would have been more racist. <laughs> Wouldn't he? He would be denying her her race. <laughs> yes. It's bizarre, isn't it? It is. It you is. just can't win with some people. Yes. Yes. So um, anyway, that concludes our little uh, sporting segment. I'm going to award a point against you, Mr McEnroe. <laughs> yes, point against you, Serena Williams. In fact, game, game against, against you. you. <laughs> yes, and tournament lost. I, mean, I just think the whole dummy spit was probably brought on because she was losing. I dare say it was. Mm. She was frustrated because she wasn't winning. Yeah. But, look, you know, we can speculate as to whether or not she could have fought back and it's definitely possible she could have won the tournament. Ironically, she's one game short, one, one title short of the all-time record. And who holds that for the most Margaret number of... Court. Our old friend Margaret Court, that that great Christian from Western Australia, is de- is denying Serena Williams at the moment. For for once in my life, I'm rooting for Margaret Court. <laughs> yeah. Look, Serena will be back. She will. She be will. Back. She'll and get she'll, there. She'll get another one. She probably will. But gee, uh, the little bit I saw that was a pretty good display by Asaka. You know. Anyway, we'll we'll see. She's yes, a- that was. I mean, that was very impressive, wasn't it? I mean, mm. she beat Serena in the first set six two. Mm. That's very impressive. Serena's no pushover on the tennis no, court no, by any no. means, is she? Anyway, that's enough tennis. We're done and dusted. All right. Squash? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Indigenous parents homeschooling children in the face of literacy and numeracy gap. Mm. So what we've got is an Aboriginal family who've decided to homeschool their Aboriginal child in order to ensure a number of things, but uh, high up on the list was cultural awareness of their yeah. by their child. And this is where Aboriginal identity, I think, has officially entered cult status. So... Uh, in this story, um, I'll quote a fair bit from this ABC article. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students are too often falling behind their non-Indigenous counterparts at school. One Aboriginal mother has turned to homeschooling as a way of making sure her children do not get left behind in the classroom. And other Indigenous mothers are taking note. Um, Ms Griffin is a... Dung Hully woman from Kempsey on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. She and her husband are raising three children um, in Western Sydney. And she's quoted as saying, we decided to homeschool not just for faith hmm, Mm -hmm. and philosophical reasons, but because we wanted to really have a deep understanding of our child's education, she said. She said she wanted her children to be proud of who they are and where they are from. 
One of the main things that we want to do is collect stories from our elders, she said. And I think it's so important because we've lost so much in terms of language, in terms of stories that have been passed down. It's really important that our young people can hear these stories and put it into their learning because if we don't, we'll lose it forever. And our young people are so interested. They want to learn about their culture. They want to know about their identity. So pull them out of a mainstream school, keep them at home. Tough man. Oh, where, where do you start? I mean, it's all about culture, is it? These kids are growing up in where? Western Sydney. Sydney. Oh, not Alice Springs. No. Not uh, Arnhem Land. No, no Western, Western Sydney. Sydney. So what is their cultural identity then? Mm, Aboriginal. Yeah. From the mid-north coast, near Kempsey. Well, mm. at least one of the parents is from Kempsey. Mm. But uh, these kids are not from Kempsey. They're from Western Sydney, as far as I can tell, aren't they? And as for culture, she, she mentioned faith. Now, I think you and I, or us three... Reading between the lines. Are reading between the lines saying this word faith is code for Christian belief, isn't it? It would not surprise. We don't know. We don't know just, for sure. But we'd put a bit of money on it probably. Yes, we probably would. Um, if, if there is some Christian faith mixed in with that culture. <laughs> how, how on earth does this Middle Eastern Stone Age cult blend <laughs> blend with, you know, uh, Indigenous Australian Stone Age cult. Did I put too fine a point on that? No, I thought you just, hit the nail right on the head, Paul. Yeah, well you, done. You just need a, a good emulsifier like homeschooling to bring it all together. Oh, my goodness. But see, this is the what whole a mess. point about homeschooling is that, you know, you've got to then question what the education level is of the parents who are going to be providing the homeschooling, you know? And... Look, I don't know that it's going to be all that high. Not, not well, not everyone can homeschool, but um, the the um, deep throat, deep throat, isn't it? Some I, I know with that. he's, and he's an yeah, advocate. No, he's, he's, he's bashing his phone against the steering wheel. Absolutely, he is right now because <laughs> he's you know, saying, you, "Don't bash homeschooling." Of itself, it works for some people. Yeah, exactly. And I and, understand the reasons mm. why they homeschooled one of their sons. Mm. I understand that, but also his wife is also mm. a teacher. Mm. Mm. So there was not a big leap there no, to no. make sure that they were getting the right sort of education. Mm. Yeah. But you know. It, we're really reaching cult status mm. when we are withdrawing kids from mainstream schools because we're wanting to enforce an indoctrination that we don't want watered down by outside influences. That that We're reaching cult status with Absolutely that. Absolutely. And yet yeah. this woman, she claims that she wants her children to understand their their heritage, and I'm pretty sure she's referring to their Indigenous heritage rather than judging by the photographs, their partly European heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, she, doesn't, she doesn't want them to know about that apparently, even though they're growing up in Western Sydney with all the benefits of Western civilization, whatever uh, are available to that couple. Um, but, you know, does she really know her own Indigenous culture and how on earth does she think Christianity is a part of that because once I mean, again you're guessing there are all these but, contradictions there aren't yeah, there yeah, quite but, possibly but Paul you know she might be part of the Aboriginal original religion which had you know the sands the snake and all that sort That's of right. stuff her, that, her faith could yeah. be a, a spiritual animistic sort of faith 
but we don't know. Mm. But anyway, alarm bells are ringing there. And anyway, in this article is a second family. Um, Nola Turner Jensen, uh, we're a John. We're a jury woman from Western New South Wales, currently lives on the Gold Coast, has been homeschooling her son, Liam, now 16, since he was in third grade. Quote, we're an oral culture and you go into a text-based education system and already Aboriginal children struggle. And any group mindset child who comes from an oral culture struggles. And so this enabled my son to be able to work out problems verbally as we have done for thousands of years, she said. I guess she's saying the homeschooling did. She said homeschooling of a son happened by accident after she pulled him out of a private school. He wasn't enjoying it. And also I was struggling with the fact that I was trying to introduce Aboriginal culture into the school and they weren't very receptive to that, even though I was offering it to them for free and offering to organise it, she said. And that really gave me a, a red flag that perhaps this is not the school for me. No, they're, they're all racists, clearly. But hang on, we're an oral, cult, an oral culture and you go into a text-based education system and already Aboriginal children struggle. How, how dare you say, how dare you speak for all Aboriginal children to say that they struggle because they're Aboriginal yeah. in a text-based education system? Yes. You are... You are a racist if it's you are saying that the children of a certain race think a different way mm-hmm. to other children. And how on earth did Noel Pearson get his law degree? So well, he must have had must it all read, read to him. Read to him, yeah. Oh, because he's from an oral culture. Yeah. Oh, okay. Would be the argument. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it, it, it's a load of nonsense, isn't it? Complete well, nonsense. Well, if it's true then you're claiming that there's a distinct racial difference between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people at a biological and intellectual level. Yes. That's what you're saying. Yes. And if a white person was to come out and say that... Yeah, exactly. would get that strung up. It's racial determinism. Yeah. yeah. So, but look, the, the reality is we all come from, um, you know, non-literate cultures if we go far enough back. I had a great uncle who was illiterate. Yes. It's not that long ago. No. True. Yeah. So. And I know he struggled through his life because he couldn't read a, a thing. Yeah. But uh, to, to claim that her children have, have, do not have the capacity, the intellectual capacity to deal with texts, that's just putting them down and putting them into a, a basket of deplorables almost. Yeah. Well, what it means is that, you know, the, the whole point about the you know, where she said that they're going to struggle because they're going into a text-based education system. It love it doesn't get any easier. It becomes more text-based yes. the way you go through. And by the time you end up at university, yeah. you might as well not bother going yeah. to lectures because, you know, everything's mm. printed. Mm. And, you know, maybe your child does struggle with text-based learning, but you can't say that all Aboriginal children exactly. do. Exactly, yeah. That, that's, that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. So anyway... Uh, I've got a link here to a book by a guy, Francis Fukuyama, and he wrote a book back in 1992 called The End of History and the Last Man. And in that, he fretted about the ability of liberal democracies and market economies to satisfy the human desire for recognition. And he was saying that liberal democracies can deliver peace and prosperity, but what happens if peace and prosperity aren't enough? 
And he went on to talk about that sort of idea in his latest book, Identity, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. And he says, A global surge of identity politics, which has in turn fueled populist nationalism, authoritarianism, religious conflict and democratic decline. Demand for recognition of one's identity is a master concept that unifies much of what is going on in world politics today and on world tennis courts, apparently, as well, for Kiyama. Um, um, he talks about... Um, well, he talks in there about religions declined in its grip of people and that identity to a group through identity politics, if you like, is is the replacement for people. So, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire, it seems. Like this is what we said at the big three years ago when we started doing this podcast on secularism and religions and stuff. And very early on I said, we've got to get a grip of this whole identity politics thing because yeah. it's kind of out of the same... Um, ideology in many ways. So mm. people are swapping, according to this guy, uh, swapping religious belief for <clears throat> I- identity beliefs. I think he might be right. It wouldn't surprise me because mm. it wasn't all that long ago that people used to count themselves Catholic or Protestant mm. and now, you know, with that ta- decline in both. It taps into that tribalistic element of religion, doesn't it? Yeah. If If you don't want to be belong to a religious tribe, you can belong to some other kind of identity tribe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he makes the point that the sort of rise of nationalism is in a direct response because people on the left are identifying as leftist groups and then white um, majorities are saying, well, what about me? And they're sort of then identifying as white nationalists. So it's a it's a response to the identity the identities created and advertised by the left that's creating this response by the right. In I think sense, that's true. Yeah, the left appear to be fueling this yeah. sort of. I mean, I'm not uh, totally convinced that there is a, a huge resurgence of so-called white nationalism. Certainly, there are elements of it. But it does look like the left is is sort of fueling it. You know, if there if there were only a, a a small number of white nationalists, you can you can see their numbers might swell with that sort of encouragement. You know, and basically saying that you know the only people that could be racists are, are white people, and that all the injustices of, of the world were inflicted upon everybody else by white people. You know, and this is their message, isn't it? So it's kind of in a sense understandable that some people would gravitate towards those sorts of white na- white uh, supremacist uh, elements. I think you should go back to what we first listened to, that Tom Ballard thing from The Nightly Show, or Tonightly Show, whatever it was, where he said, you know, who's responsible for this? Well, partially we are. Mm. I think there was very powerful words in that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I uh, did some research about... Uh, how do you join the Labor Party? And I, <laughs> yes. and I, I, you kept on trying to get me to join. And, and I, I made some... Uh, anyway, if you go onto the website for the Queensland Labor Party for signing up, 25 bucks. I haven't, dear listener. 
but you know they ask for all your normal details and then they say would you like to join any of the following labor associations so these are little subgroups within the labor movement that you can you can join <laughs> there's nine of them you could join lean which is labor in environment action network so you're keen on the environment join them you could join bwl business with labor small businessman but you like labor join that little subgroup labor for teachers local and labor which is about reforming the branch system etc labor enabled which is for the disabled oh really <laughs> i guess here's one interesting one the australia israel labor dialogue really mm but if you're not happy with that, you could always join Labor Friends of Palestine. Yeah. <laughs> They've covered both bases. They have. <laughs> that almost looks like cynical, doesn't it? Cynical Labor, opportunism. Labor for the regions and multicultural labor. But, yeah, in their little subgroups, you've got the Australia-Israel Labor Dialogue and you've got Labor Friends of Palestine. Goodness me. They've keyed into identity politics big time, haven't they? They have, yeah. And multicultural labor. So you Not know, just, just a member of the Labor Party anymore. So there we go. It's, a, it's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Can't you just join the Labor Party for the, for the working class? Whatever they may be, Apparently disabled, yeah. Israeli, Palestinian yeah. sympathisers, uh, and look, black, white, or brindle. Like yeah. honestly, and smarter commentators just, than me oh have, have made the point that um, you know Labor parties used to stand for the breakdown of the class system. Mm. They used to stand for everybody being treated as human equals, regardless of ethnic origin. Uh, relative wealth, gender, sexuality, what have you. What has happened to the left? It was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) You know, also years ago, Scott, we started talking about American universities and the wacky things that were going on there in terms of the deplatforming of people who wanted to speak. And we did it because we said, watch out, whatever happens in America comes across here eventually. And um, Bettina Arndt um, mm. rocked up at an Australian university. Uh, which one was it here? Latrobe. Uh, Latrobe. In order to speak about the topic that we've talked about with her before, <coughs> which was the, the rape crisis and her argument via statistics that there is no rape crisis and Australian campuses are just perfectly normal or if not better than normal. So... She um, rocked up and before she spoke, um, there were protesters outside with megaphones and um, she basically approached them and tried to speak to them to say, let's talk and why don't you come in and talk inside as well, but let's talk. And they just weren't having a bar of it. And she said, I went over there to ask them to come and listen and to ask me questions they proceeded to scream in my ear from a foot away. Socialist student leader Elliot Downs said before the protest they did not want to shut Miss Aunt down. Quote, I think she represents a real far-right kind of sexism which drags society back to the 1950s. 
we're not here to shut her down. We're here to show her there is opposition to those views. But the socialist student added they had no interest in taking on Ms Arndt in debate. I think our protest is the dialogue I want with her. I think she has enough capacity to share her ideas, they said. So they're going a bit further back than the 1950s with those tactics, I think, aren't they? Well, just shouting and just unwilling to debate. Because probably all they can do is talk about their identity and, Mm. and go, well, I'm female and therefore that's all I need to say. On this issue, I feel threatened by your statement. Mm. Stop talking. One senses. Yeah. They're not interested in discussion or dialogue at all. No, no clearly they're not. It, mm. You know, Miss Aunt clearly tried to engage with them and that sort of thing, and they just weren't interested. Mm. Mm. You guys a fan of Burt Reynolds? I wouldn't call myself a fan, but I was a little bit surprised when I found out that he was 83 when he died. Mm. I was very surprised because I always, you know, it's ridiculous, I know, but I was still considering him to be looking like he was in Smoking the Bandit. <laughs> you know, so that was 1978 or something like that that yeah. that mm. movie was made. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. I just don't equate people ageing, that's all. So. Yes. <laughs> and he got his big break in Deliverance. When was that made? Oh, I couldn't tell you. Oh, no. Have you ever seen it? No. I've I've seen the trailer for it. It was released in 1972, and uh, see if you can remember this. That's from Deliverance, and it's also used to open the um, LMP conferences in Queensland every year. <laughs> yeah, I never get to let that song that actually had a run on the uh, on the commercial radio, didn't it? Uh, when that film came out, that was a very popular song for a while. It's a good scene if you go onto YouTube and look up the scene. It's a really creepy looking kid playing the banjo on the porch, and they have this dueling banjo thing with. I think John Voigt or one of the other actors. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've uh, never seen the film, but I'm curious now to to have a look at it. Yeah. Uh, so a group of guys who decide to go rafting down a river before a dam uh, sort of blocks it off, and they come across some good old boys and have a run in with them. And um, anyway, uh, I'll just quote this little bit I found from Wikipedia. I think it was that I really enjoyed. It said. The film is infamous for cutting costs by not insuring the production and having the actors do their own stunts. Most notably, John Voigt climbed the cliff himself. In one scene, the stunt coordinator decided that a scene showing a canoe with a dummy of Burt Reynolds in it looked phony. And he said, quote, looks like a canoe with a dummy in it. Reynolds requested to have the scene reshot with himself in the canoe rather than the dummy. After shooting the scene, Reynolds, coughing up river water and nursing a broken coccyx, asked how the scene looked. The director responded, quote, like a canoe with a dummy in it. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. A little bit harsh. Oh, that's good. No? That's really good. Vale, Bernard Reynolds. Yep. I uh, got that and that. And... Um, 
bear with me while I get to the next tab. <laughs> what are we up to? Oh, we need to talk about um, a little bit of Scott Morrison. <laughs> do we? Do we have to? Oh. Okay, let's. Yeah, let's let's just do a little it's bit. Not that horrible Christian thing, is it? Uh, yeah, it is. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, um, the evangelicals are just ecstatic that Morrison has been elected, and if you're wondering how happy they are, just have a listen to this. We are so excited to report what we believe are two direct answers to our prayer and fasting, to the avalanche of evil that is upon us and the many challenges our nation faces at this time. He's a born-again Christian. He's, the, he's probably one of the first ever born-again prime ministers, but it's not time to celebrate at the moment. It's time for the body of Christ to come in together as a unit. And I really see that uh, the body of Christ is going to have influence in the arena of the political arena of this nation, but it's, I've got the two P words. It's either prayer or persecution. And if the Prime Minister right now doesn't get elected in this next election, there's, there, there's going to be darkness coming. And I'm not being negative. There's going to be the laws are going to change where darkness is going to come and there will be persecution on the church. It would seem that this is a direct answer to our prayers as we prayed against the erosion of our Christian freedoms under the forthcoming Ruddock Report. And we thank you, Lord, that the laws are coming back to the traditional righteousness. The righteousness of God has been released over this land, and we decree it in Jesus' name. Where is it? <laughs> yeah, you better hide, mate. <laughs> There's a darkness coming. I don't want to be negative. Yeah, but there is someone a, turn the lights out? <laughs> there is a darkness coming. You were shaking yeah. your head when he said he was a born again. You, yeah, no, because he grew up in a Christian family. Now, right, technically, so born a, a again. born again Christian is someone who, mm. who is not a Christian, who has a sort of um, epiphany, you know, and they give themselves to, to Jesus, uh, if you like. So, no, I, I don't believe that's true, is it? Of Scott? No, I think he, he was always a Christian. He grew up in a Christian family so. and absorbed, Since, absorbed the superstition from his parents. Absolutely. Now, mm. you know, the term born again can relate to you even if you grew up in a Christian household and that sort of stuff. You could end up having your epiphany when you're 12. If, if you had rejected it, <clears throat> surely. You know? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, if you had rejected it and then come back to it. But he wasn't born again. He was born into it. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, the darkness that he's referring to is the Labor Party coming to office. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. Oh. Yes. Yeah, so oh, I know. The- because they they don't have a good uh, energy policy, so the lights are all going to go out. Is that what it's about? Well, the coalition doesn't have an energy policy either. You know, <laughs> so it's no. They just threw it in the bin, didn't they? They, had well, they threw it in the bin, and and Turnbull's parting words, I thought, were very beautiful. How he said that, you know, he said emissions. He says emissions are very difficult for the Liberal Party. Yes, you know, he did say that. Mm. <clears throat> just a reminder, with the Ruddock review coming out, um, just a reminder of Scott Morrison's feelings, Mr. Speaker. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. This is a nation where you have the freedom to follow any belief system you choose. Secularism is just one. It has no greater claim than any other on our society. As US Senator Joe Lieberman said, the Constitution provides for freedom of religion, not from religion. I believe the same is true in this country. 
Senator oh. Joe Lieberman? He's an American. He, he, he liked quoting Americans. He was talking about the American Constitution, yeah, surely, yeah, not yeah. the Australian one. But, but at the end there he said, and I believe the same applies here. Oh, God. We're in trouble. We're in big trouble because ScoMo obviously doesn't really understand what secularism is. Uh, certainly has no respect for it. So we're, we are in trouble. He's, mm. he's, he's, it's like a lifestyle choice. <laughs> Apparently so, yes. Mm. Another lifestyle choice. Mm. Oh dear, scamo, scamo, scamo. Right, we got a message from a uh, one of our listeners. Let me just find his message. Bear with me one second. Um, from Steve, who said, "Hi, Trevor. I've been randomly going through the various submissions to the government inquiry into <laughs> replacement of parliamentary prayer." Because I'm a sad case. <laughs> We're all sad cases. Here. And I'm actually interested, Steve, so I too am a sad case. <laughs> he said, most of, most of them are pretty predictable, but the final line on this one had me scratching my head. Unfortunately, under the current regime, this probably counts as a cogent argument. And then he's given us a link to... Um, Email, yeah, from Keith Collins. Yeah. Uh, have you got it? Do you want to read it for me, Scott? If you've got you a handy? the whole email, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Dear Richard, uh, this is to the Mr. Richard Pye, Clerk of the Senate. Dear Richard, I've just been made aware of the Greens' proposal to replace the original Lord's Prayer at the start of the Senate sitting with an invitation to prayer or reflection. I strongly object, that's underlined, to any move to replace the Lord's Prayer in my Parliament. This prayer is the best prayer that can ever be said. To replace it with a nothing statement devalues the high standing of the Senate. The Lord's Prayer brings the Senate and all its deliberations under God's blessing and protection. I have seen demons cast out with just this prayer. <laughs> the Lord's Prayer also acknowledges Australia's heritage, which, is found, which was founded upon the Judeo-Christian values. This is a direct attempt by Senator Lee Rhiannon to banish any trace from, of our Christian tradition from the public sphere. I think that if any senators feel uncomfortable with prayer, they should be given leave not to be present. You will also find that other religions do not have any problem with the, with the Lord's Prayer. And lastly, Donald Trump would not allow this move. Yours faithfully, Keith Collins. <laughs> um, it was the Donald Trump bit that got yeah. Steve. <laughs> it was very peculiar. I think when you sent the um, thing round to us earlier on in the week, I said that I think Keith belonged in a rubber room, and I stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good find, Steve. Thank you for well that. Well done, Steve. Thank mm. you. Mm. Archbishop Coleridge, Brisbane Archbishop, Catholic. Yes. Mark Coleridge sent out a email to parishioners and apparently attached to it was a video. I couldn't – I tried to find the video. I looked high and low but couldn't get it. Mm. But apparently in it he said – uh, the Catholic Church is often slammed by people who say, how dare we speak about abortion when we've done so many things wrong with child sexual abuse. But if there's one thing the Church has learned at great cost in recent years, it's the need to protect the vulnerable at every point of the journey, and the journey begins in the womb. I've come to see that there's a link between abortion and child abuse. And he goes on. So he's basically saying vote against the abortion laws and tell your politicians because it's child abuse. And if anyone should know, he should know. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What is the link? He's saying that the childhood starts in the womb. Okay. Yeah. That's what he's saying. Okay. So that's a collection of cells and that sort of stuff that you can take for RU4864, that's a child murder apparently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in any event, he's – they're not bad, are they? Like all of the stuff that's coming out in the Royal Commission and he's mounting an argument based on child abuse. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's it, the it, thing that gets dripping me. with hypocrisy. It's, mm. it's just has it flown right over the heads of those those guys in the Catholic Church? Apparently so. Mm. Mm. Right, time to thank some patrons, and um, well, we've got an interesting donation come through, and uh, let me, and, and we've got a speak pipe message that came with it as well. So, um. Here we go. Fist, glove, 12th man, hard bottom here. Well, listen up, you three leftist libtards. I was pleased to hear that you were overcoming your insanity by subscribing to that fine Murdoch masterpiece, The Australian. (laughs) To help you in your recovery and ongoing therapy, I have made a contribution. Don't ask me why. Perhaps because I like meerkats. <laughs> but remember, I have a hessian bag, a brick, and your names are on it if you don't mend your way. <laughs> Thank you very much, Landon. He's, he's very forgiving, isn't he, Landon? He is, yes. Yeah. You know, considering uh, the last time that we had any dealings with Landon Hardbottom, he... <laughs> He was not very happy with us. No. Do you remember that? Yes, we're going, I do remember that. For, yeah. for those listeners who can't remember, it's, it's worth hearing again just how angry he was with us. The leisure. Um, do a Google search on land and hard bottom. <laughs> and, and what yes, Cheryl, what's that you're saying? You're doing a Google search? Well, yes, I, I know it could be me, but it's not me. Well, of course it's not me. Lots of people have a tattoo of a boot on the throat of the working man. Oh, I'm, I'm telling you, it's not me, Cheryl. Oh, Cheryl? Cheryl, don't, no. Oh, not my John Howard commemorative shot glasses. Oh, come on now. Cheryl, Cheryl, it's not smut, it's art, it's art, Cheryl, it's, it's art. Oh, fist, glove, twelfth man, you've just made it to the top of the hard bottom shit list. Uh, he's a forgiving sort of guy, apparently, because he, yes. he came through with a very generous donation. Yes. Very generous. Thank you. Thank you very much, Landon. Landon. And we do appreciate that. Uh, we got also uh, another um, another word from another from Was. Was, yes. Yes. Um, I won't read the whole message. Uh, Mr. Fist and Glove. Um, I discovered your podcast recently. I really enjoy it. I find it very informative and entertaining. And then we get down to the real money shot, the final chapter, which warmed the cockles of my heart. 
In the absence of Mr. Glove being able to secure a beer sponsor, it appears he has been trying for a considerable time, I would like to shout him a mixed carton of craft beer. To accept this offer, please send me your address and I will send it immediately. (laughs) Keep up the good work. Cheers, was Warren, thank you very much. (laughs) We do appreciate that a lot. And... uh, that means for the next, well, four to six weeks, I will be thanking you every week and letting you know what beer I'm enjoying. So mm. thank you very much. We do appreciate that. Mm. It hasn't arrived as yet, but it did say on the delivery thing that they're out of stock, but it's it's on its way. So thanks, mm. Was, for that. Thank you so, very much. Um, I'm going to read out our list of patrons uh, from top to bottom in terms of overall contribution to us and... Um, would you believe that Landham Hardbottom comes in at number four on our list <laughs> and what was, courtesy of a carton of beer, comes in at number six. So there you go, dear listener. We're only asking a dollar a show, so you can be with us for 52 weeks and you're only up for $52. So well, there's a lot of people in that category. So anyway, starting at the top, the one and the only, the, the, the man, Sean. Thanks, mate. Uh, Alex Ayame Landon, <laughs> Tony was, Jarsting as Platcam, Janelle Craig, John, the beneficiary, Grant, Brett, Wayno, Jimmy, Craig, Jimmy Spud, Allison, Steve, Caitlin, Watley, Kane, Matt J, Rod, Bronwyn, Robbie, Dean, Pele, Matic Man, new patrons, Dominic, Liam, uh, Dave, and Squeaky Wheel. Came oh, on board. Really? Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Squeaky Wheel. Thank you, Squeaky and, Wheel. Yeah. Uh, terrific. So that guy, he's back at the window again. Scientists have recently discovered that expat tribe members, listening to their musings from both far and wide, have been contributing to the group's well-being and habitat infrastructure through something called Patreon. Some for as little as one dollar a podcast. It really is making a difference, and it's been observed to enrich the tribe as a whole, with contributing members experiencing measured dopamine spikes when new episodes are released, and even intermittent bouts of persistent smiling while listening. Ah, there seems to be movement again. If we listen carefully, we may be able to make out the discussion once more. Uh, and I think from Dave, there was, uh, yeah, Dave um, said, Well, the guilt has got to me, so I signed up via Patreon tonight. As a semi-retired accountant and philosopher, I heard about you gentlemen via my sad addiction to Cam Riley's podcast. <laughs> Whilst I don't agree with some of your politics, I always enjoy your repartee. I'm a paid-up member of the ALP, so I have already warned the Central Committee of your nefarious schemes. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Thwarted. Yeah. So, well, the element of surprise has left us. Um, one of our patrons in the past was Bronwyn, remember? Yes. And she said, why don't you guys talk to some other people? And one of the ones she suggested was the Blot Report. And uh, Bronwyn, I managed to speak to Mr. Blot of the Blot Report and recorded an interview. And unfortunately, um, the quality of it wasn't great. So I'm going to tack it on the end of this episode, dear listener. And we cut it short from what I would have normally done just because... Um, uh, the audio wasn't that great. So 
if you're listening to it and you um, you just the audio is too hard, well, stop because there'll be nothing after it. And um, but if you if you can bear the audio, he's an interesting guy and uh, is doing some interesting things. So that's Mr. Blot from the Blot Report. That will be tacked onto the end of this episode. And um, gentlemen, a little bit of news about au pairs and Peter Dutton and and Border Force characters. Any thoughts on all of that? I wish I could get one. (laughs) Do you have an au pair, Trevor? No, no, no. I love. No, I don't have an au pair. I've found it ridiculous that this man put himself forward to be the Prime Minister when he had all this sort of stuff brewing up in the background. Now, one would have had to have imagined that because he was the attack dog for the Liberal Party that he would have known that what his opponents would be doing is scaling through all the decisions that he made while he was immigration minister. Apparently, he was too stupid to take a look at it and it's now blowing up in his face and, well, it's blowing up in Morrison's but, but, face. But he wouldn't have seen it as anything wrong. Like, no. that's just what you do for your mates. So he wouldn't have seen it as anything wrong. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done, you know, if he recognised a problem, he wouldn't have done it in the first place. Well, it's true. I I just think he got, I think he thought he could get away with it. Yeah. I think he thought that no one's ever going to notice. He probably did think he was going to get away with it. With departments, all the number of people who are going to find out, you know, because you issue an order, but it it has to trickle down. Yeah, that's true. You couldn't really think, could you? Well, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me that yeah. this is what he was thinking. Because, you know, th- these au pairs came into the country, what, two, three years ago, didn't they? Uh, well, when he was Home Affairs Minister or whatever yeah, he was. Yeah. Minister yeah. for Immigration. Yeah. He only just lost that in the reshuffle. Mm. So it could have been six months ago. Yeah. So, <clears throat> But then the the yeah. bloke, what's his name? The former Border Force head. Mm. One with the... Difficult name. Yeah, I can't mm. think what he's called. Yeah. His intervention is very interesting. Mm. But yeah, he seems to have mucked it up. He's got his dates wrong or something like that. No, I haven't yeah. been watching it all that closely. Mm. Okay, so that's buggered it up then. Mm. Yeah. But uh, I, I can't trust that guy because... No, he was trying to get his girlfriend in the office. Yeah. It seemed to be, but just he seemed to love wearing uniforms and medals. Mm. And honestly, he looked like something out of Pinochet's Chilean military sort of command. It just anyone with a with a love of of medals and uniforms, I just couldn't trust from the very beginning. Really, yeah. you're, you're a public servant enforcing an immigration policy. You know, you're not some. You look, they look like jackbooted Nazi guys that border force with their really black looking uniform, really dark and quite I menacing. That. I thought. That uh, raid got cancelled where they were going around. They were planning on going around asking people for their papers. That's right. They were going to go through the through the shopping or through the mall or whatever it is, the Stand streets Melbourne, of Melbourne, yeah. asking people for their papers. Yeah. If you looked like a uh, suspicious immigrant, they were going to walk up and say, "Show me your papers. Prove yeah. you're an Australian citizen." Until people found out the plan and started marching, exactly. but that was there yeah. while he was in charge. Yeah. yeah. Goodness me. So, anyway, there's an article here from Crikey that says, police states are distinguished by a highly selective approach to the rule of law. Those deemed opponents of the government face the full legal apparatus of the state intended to punish those who embarrass or expose it and deter any others who might similarly be tempted. 
but friends of the government can skirt the apparatus entirely, securing favour with a phone call, an email, and appeal to old mateship, business ties, mutual interests, donations. One rule for the former, no rules for the latter. Mm. And as an exhibit to that argument, there was a lawyer who uh, he worked for the Immigration Department for 38 years, went into private practice and had a contract as a legal advisor with Veteran Affairs. The contract was due to end in October. He, uh, the, the department was in the process of extending the contract. He went and had an interview with the 7.30 report and when speaking about Dutton said it was a bit unusual, the decisions he'd made. And in the morning, he could tell by an email that his contract uh, renewal, the extension was being processed. He went on 7.30 report that night and the next day he was told his contract was terminated or was not going to be renewed, sorry. Mm. Um, and it looks to be a case of retaliation, is what he's saying. It yeah. certainly does look that way, doesn't it? Mm. Right. A um, few quick words on uh, our friend Donald Trump and um, Woodward start a book. And Are you going to buy that? Uh, don't know about that. I, I, I suspect all the juicy bits will come out through other exactly, means and probably yeah. won't need to. Yeah. But paints a picture of a chaotic White House that's white-anting white exactly. the president. And a guy came out and gave an anonymous piece to the Washington Post, I think it was. New York Times. New York Times. Yep. Thank you basically saying that I work high up within the White House and uh, I'm part of the resistance that is actively working to disrupt the efforts of the president. And uh, the, uh, you know, Trump doesn't know who it is. Um, the sad fact is it could be any one of a hundred people who probably hate him and are working against him. You know, when you're a man like Donald Trump, you, 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 your potential enemies are numerous, so could be anybody. But the idea of somebody working in the White House, secretly working against the president, uh, some people have objected and said, mm, you should resign. Others have said, good on you. Thoughts? It's probably whatever the resistance, as he's called it, were achieving has now been shot because he's come out in public and said that there is a resistance movement there. I think that um, it's just going to boost Trump's paranoia to the point that he's going to be on a witch hunt to find him and sack him. Or her. Or her, exactly, him or her. Now... What that means for everybody else is they're going to be going above and beyond what is necessary to serve the president. And they're going to make sure that every piece of paper finds its way to his desk. And, you know, you end up with ridiculous situations like, you know, cancelling the South Korean free trade deal and blah, 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 blah. All those sorts of things will be 
taken off, were being taken off his desk so he couldn't do anything about it. Now they're going to end up at his desk because people are going to try and curry favour with him to make sure that they're out of suspicion. So from that point of view, I do think it would have been better had he resigned and given a tell-all interview to the New York Times and said, you know, this is sort of nonsense that's going on. I was the one that did all that and that would have kept them all safe. There is some suggestion that, um, I forget what the term is, the Lodestar, Lodestar, I think it is, Lodestar. Yes, in the article it used the word Lodestar, which is a word that apparently Mike Pence Pence uses. Mm. So there is a suggestion that it was him or one of his senior members of staff that was writing it. Or it was somebody who knew that Lodestar was a Mike Pence favourite word and inserted it in order to cause a problem for for Mike Pence. Yeah. It, it could well, it, it, it could well be, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things that's it proves that the administration is falling apart. Mm. Yeah, twelfth man. What have you got to say? Oh, look, you know, Trump just never ceases to appall me. But, but somebody in that position should they quit or sh- an and be honest, or should question. they be, you know, inverted commas, dishonest and remain and white ant? Well, if they were going to white hand, then I think he should have remained there and kept quiet about it rather than going yes, and doing, I, this, I doing the interview. I, I, yeah. Because they're less effective. Sorry? Because they'll be less effective. Yeah, they'll be less effective. Right. Yeah. And you wonder why they would come out and uh, spill their guts like Well, this. to assuage the concerns of the public the who American are thinking, public, oh, my think God. That their democracy is being systematically dismantled by Trump. Correct. Mm. So it's saying to people, relax. There are people on the inside, the resistance, mm. who are working for, yeah. uh, you know, the benefit of the American people mm. and are trying to... I just think, you know, Trump doesn't play by the rules yeah. and uh, really... If somebody doesn't play by the rules, then why do you have to if you're going to fight them? So I think it's legitimate to mm. to do it and it's up to him to find them and sack them if he wants to. Mm. So that's my opinion. But So you mm. think we can take a little bit of comfort from the fact that somebody inside his administration is actively working against him? Well, I think there's some comfort in that, don't yeah. you think? Well, it- Look, I think there's a certain amount of comfort that you got people there that are actually trying to stop him. The story was from Woodward was that, that actually not putting papers on his desk to sign so that these decisions don't get implemented because they yeah. haven't been signed. So, but he, Trump apparently has such a short attention span anyway yeah. that you, you can't help wondering whether he, you know, if you didn't put the paper on his desk and leave it there for five minutes, he'd forget it was there. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, apparently he doesn't even read. You know, the briefs that are given to him on certain, you know, uh, legal yeah, matters. He that hates reading. Yeah. He hates reading. And apparently he has a really short attention span. Mm. The person who did the biography, you know, for him mm. uh, came out during the, the election, in fact, and said, this guy is not very uh, intellectual, if mm. I can put it like that. He doesn't read anything. He has no interest in reading anything. And, you know, all these fancy documents he loves holding up with his signature on it, mm. apparently he doesn't read them either. Right, yep. He just signs. He just says... Mm. Where do I sign? Where mm. do I sign? And okay. holds it up. See, and this is my signature. I like great. Mm. Mm. Speaking of Mike Pence, if you were to back him to be the next president in 2020, 
What odds would you give for Mike Pence, you reckon? As president? Yeah. Oh, it's a frightening thought, isn't it? Yeah. So what they're suggesting that Donald Trump's going to step down before the next election? Well, let's t- we've done this before, but let's just look at the current odds on Betfair. Okay. So if you want to back Donald Trump, you can have uh, $2.86 as the current rate. That, to me, seems crazy. Like, the, it, the odds would be much higher than that, I, I would have thought. I thought so, yeah. So if you want to back against Donald Trump, um, you can do it at $2.90. So, um, I reckon. So, I reckon that's a fair. I'm very tempted to bet that he will not win the presidency. So, put a hundred dollars on it, for example. And if I lose, I'll have to pay somebody two hundred and ninety. But if if I win the bet, I'll keep. I'll I'll get the hundred. So that to me seems a fair bet. Like. I mean, lots, so much could happen. A, just forget about the actual election, but he could just die or be assassinated or get really ill. Like, I mean, of his age, just physically surviving till 2020, there's a fair chance something will happen. So, well, considering he's not so, in good shape. So, you know, not, you know, I'm willing to put an episode's worth of patronage on. <laughs> <laughs> on Donald Trump not making it, and we'll see how we go. And look, we what know do you reckon? that we, I've long suspected that Mike Pence didn't really like Trump but thought he would accept the nomination mm. as his vice president, mm. just, you know, hedging his bets that maybe Trumpy would not make it to the end of yeah. even a second term, yeah. and then Pence would automatically become president and then he could, you know... Mm. <laughs> Look, Fulfill his you know, evangelical fantasies. You know, to, um, uh, uh, imagine if Trump. Very imagine if Trump just decides not to run, or he's too ill to run, or dies, or something. Or like, he's Pence would be certified in a good, insane. Pence would be in a good position at twenty two dollars. <throat> that's not a bad bet, I reckon. Mm. So, um, other ones that's in assuming there. Assuming that the Democrats don't win. Yeah, and I think that the American public is going to be so jaded by this that they're not going to forgive the Republicans. I reckon the Democrats are in a very strong position next time. Well, well, we'll see. But um, anyway, uh, well, we have to wait and see. You're right because April Winfrey is still at fifty five dollars. Oh, for um, God's sake, Michael uh, Avenatti, that's the the lawyer for um, for Stormy Daniels. He's at uh, fifty five dollars. <laughs> As a candidate, uh, yeah, yeah, no, they're talking. Yes, he's he's. What about she, Stormy herself? Uh, Is actually, she a candidate? Um, let me just. I see. think she'd make a better president than Trump. I, well, that's true. I don't see her on the list here. Elon Musk is three hundred and ten. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about that? Um, uh, Bernie Sanders nineteen. Uh, um. Hillary Clinton, $60. Um, no, Clinton's not going to run that. Nah, She's her, finished. Her career is finished, yeah, as presidential candidate. Ivanka Trump, 85. Oh, my goodness. Good uh, Lord. Uh, and uh, Jared Kushner? Uh, don't see him on this particular. Okay. Kanye West, um, <laughs> 60. 60. What about Burt Reynolds? Is is he Kanye on? West is... Hang on. No, Kanye West must be sorry. He's 130 because uh, George Clooney's 650. <laughs> anyway, 
Betfair if you want to gamble responsibly. <laughs> <laughs> Which would mean don't gamble on at all. Oh, actually, we'll do it at another time. The amount that's spent on poker machines is frightening. I saw a statistic for it the other day. It's so, appalling. That's it is. What it's, it's, yeah. it's, mm. You know, state governments are cannibalising their own population for yeah. the money. Yeah. So, um, um, okay, well, um, I am going to play at the end of all this um, bit of my interview with Mr. Blot, so mm-hmm. stay tuned for that if you wish and... Otherwise, we will catch up with you next week. Yes. See you, guys. See you next week, guys. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone. Dear listener, you might recall a few weeks ago we had a bit of a discussion with listener and patron Bronwyn, and she said at the time it would be a good idea if we explored other voices and and sort of got outside of our echo chamber a, a bit more and we explained that we're trying to do that. Any, in any event, she gave the gave me a list of a few things that I should look at, a few websites and stuff, and one of those was a blog called The Blot, Blot Report, B-L-O-T, and it was a really good tip, Bronwyn. So I've been reading The Blot Report uh, over the last few weeks and have subscribed and find myself quoting from it and... Um, so I reached out to the Blot Report, and lo and behold, Mr. Blot himself uh, responded, and I've got him on the line. So he's going to join me for a little bit of a podcast here. Welcome to the Iron Fist Velvet, Velvet Glove podcast, Mr. Blot. Thank you, Trevor. Yeah. So um, for reasons of privacy, you're just going to keep your real name um, out of this, and that's fair enough, because... So one of the problems with the topics that we sort of address is um, you've got to be careful. People could retaliate in the employment world or, or whatever. So um, so we'll just keep you as Mr. Blot. And we operate under pseudonyms under this um, podcast anyway. I'm the Iron Fist and we've got the Velvet Glove and the Twelfth Man and Deep Throat. So it's not unusual to have a pseudonym. So hey, um, love the blog. And dear listener, um, after this um, episode. What I want you to do is to stop everything and go on and subscribe to the Blot Report. But um, Blot, it's obviously a, a, a blog I would describe as, as news and politics, obviously, you know, with an emphasis on Australia and a fair bit of religion bashing. So your sort of content is not dissimilar to what we're offering here. Um, what made you get into writing a blog and and what's the story there? What was, what was the motivation? When, why and how did you end up doing that? Well, it all started off with me um, annoying my wife and shouting at the television when the news was on. Um, and as televisions are expensive, I thought it might be a good idea to do something else. And uh, after discussions with my kids... Um, this this happened. It, uh, it started off um, just as a way of venting, but it's um, it's got into something much greater because there is so much to vent about. And as I think I told you, I've I've now posted what four hundred and eight rants on there um, over the last what, nineteen twenty months or so. And the topics just keep coming, so I, I'm afraid I can't help myself now. <laughs> and are you a lot calmer as a result now that you get it off your chest? 
beg your pardon, I didn't catch that. Are you a bit calmer now in everyday life that you can get it off your chest, you know, in the form of a uh, blog? Well, I don't shout at the television so much. Right. I'm usually I'm usually ranting on my computer while the television news is on. So. Yeah, yep. Um, it, it, it does, yeah, I think it has actually calmed me down because it's sort of very cathartic being able to say, well, this is disgusting and this is why. And uh, that's what happens time and time again. So I just, down and light, and writing is something I can do. I do it. Yep. One of the things I like about your blog is that you've got lots of references and footnotes. So as you're saying stuff, you've got the f- the footnote and um, lots of references. So not many people do that. So that's you know one of the things I liked about the blog as well was was that um, you've yeah. got a, a fair bit of religion um, well, bashing, I guess you'd say. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it's you know you almost sound like an ex-Catholic to me. Are you were you brought up religious and and had enough of it, or what's the story there? No, I um, there's one rant I did on the on the block uh, called "Losing My Religion," which explains it all, and uh, it happened when I was about in my teens, I suppose. Um, at school, there was you know, we had. Uh, Religion classes once a week, um, and I was mixed in with the um, the and others, um, and um, it got to a stage where I asked my parents to write me a note saying I was excused from. Was, was that, a, st- was that a state school or a, or a religious school? State school. Mm. Yeah, we we had religion classes every week, yep. just once a week. That's all. Um, I don't know what it would be like in a, uh, a religious school. I can I can barely imagine. But um, the person who used to deliver these these um, what we call scripture lessons was not a very nice person. Um, he was. I think he would have preferred to have been somewhere else, uh, really, because he was trying to preach to. Some you know, a classroom of forty kids who themselves would have preferred to be somewhere else, I suppose. And uh, I eventually coerced my parents into writing a note saying I was excused, and uh, I went and studied in the library with uh, a few mates, and um, we had a great time studying as well as singing church tunes. One of the, one of the friends was uh, a really keen um, musical. Aficionado, and we used to sing tunes. I can still remember singing the theme song from Oklahoma in the middle of the library. And uh, right. one of the French teachers in the um, in the attached uh, tutorial room came out and complained. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, how old were you then? Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. Yep. So. Um, so with the just back to the blog, um, you just. Started writing it, and you've just attracted followers just organically. People finding you somehow through Google searches. Is that have you done anything to promote it? Have you? What are you doing that way? At the, uh, at the advice of my um, my media manager, which is one of my sons, mm-hmm. um, he said I should get on Twitter. So I got on Twitter and um, as just a blog report, and there's um, I've got something 
like 1,100 followers now, um, which is not a huge number, but it's, uh, it's a hell of a lot more than when I started. Yep. Um, there are 30-odd people subscribed to the blog, and again, my media manager tells me that um, it's uncool these days to subscribe to uh, things like this, so I will, I will take that under advisement. Right. That's interesting. So 1,100 Twitter followers, but yeah. only 32 people willing to read or have, have the articles delivered to them automatically via an email because that's what we're talking yeah. about with the subscription here. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. See, I've never got into Twitter, and it just strikes me as a forum that I'm not going to like because it is so short and brief and nuance gets lost and... Well, it doesn't have to. Right. Uh, yeah, well, that's why I'm curious for you to convince me. Uh, yeah, tell me your yeah. experience. You can... Um, like when I started, it was, uh, it was 140 characters, which is certainly not much. But now it's, it's uh, 280, I think. Um, and when I started, it certainly was sure we had a very carefully structure what you wanted to say. But even even with um, 280 characters, it's not a lot of space. So you, um, you tend to uh, be very careful and, and almost speak in a staccato voice, uh, really. And uh, if people want to get things across, and there are lots of people who do, they will have a multi-part clip um, series or, or thread, as it's called. And one of the people I follow, um, because of a half-baked interest in US politics, um, he usually does this as a matter of getting his story across, and uh, he can he can be very nuanced when he needs to be. Um, but there are ways of getting around the, the, the fact that you're hamstrung by 280 characters. Right. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of followers, anybody famous or do any of the current political members of the political class follow you at all? What on Twitter? Yeah. Um, I couldn't really tell you. Right. There are some people I, I um, that have followed me that um, you know have a hell of a lot more. Um, Followers than I do, so I presume they're somewhere in the uh, political game, but uh, I don't really know who they are. Right. So okay. Yep. Mostly the answer to that would be no. Right. Okay. You don't have Julie Bishop or Scott Morrison following you, for example. <laughs> no. <laughs> they probably that wouldn't would be like. A big ask. They would probably wouldn't That'd like. That'd be it. a big ask, I think. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about a few of your recent um, posts. Um, because as I sort of said to you in an email, I've I've started quoting your posts and I thought, well, we might as well get it straight from the horse's mouth rather than me just um, talking about it. So let's let's kick off with you've got a um, a post about uh, I think now this one is it uh, I might have a wrong one on the screen here. Well, about Scott Morrison, you've been commenting recently anyway, and. Yep. Um, You've gone here about um, his recent quote, I think from the Sydney Morning Herald, where he said, 
and talking about the potential Ruddock report that's coming out, words to the effect of he said, just because things have just because things haven't been a problem in the past doesn't mean they won't be a problem in the future. So I'll be taking a proactive approach when it comes to ensuring that people's religious freedoms are protected. What did you think of that? Well, I think he's 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 judging the rest of us like um, the rest of us judge people in religious cults or sects or whatever you want to call them um, who have been how would you put it who have been discriminating against LGBTIQ people and whoever else they can lay their hands on um, in the past and I think they are seeing the boot being put on the other foot and that worries them a bit I think I think deep down this is the um, the religious realising that their influence in society is a hell of a lot less than it used to be and it's rapidly decreasing too. Yeah, I saw that uh, line in your blog and I was going to take that one up with you actually, Mr Blot, because I would argue that that their power, their political power, is actually increasing uh, sort of in inverse proportion to, you know, what, what people are practising in the community. So, you know, we've, we've, we've now got a Pentecostal in charge of the country. So yeah. from, from that point of view, I think there's a disconnect. I, I think that this is the dominionism um, sort of theory being played out and it really doesn't matter what the general population is doing if you've put... Uh, religious people in the important positions, then they've got the power. So to me, there's going to be an exercise of muscle and power. Um, and that's what we saw with the ousting of Turnbull. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I think it's an exercise of newfound power. I agree it's totally um, opposite to the to what the community is experiencing, but it's there nonetheless. So what do you think of that? Well, I think I think that's right. Um, but I think it's born of desperation more than anything else because mm-hmm. they can see their, their influence uh, diminishing and um, I presume that there's a sort of a, a thrust to get into Parliament and to try to stop it. Right, because you know, a lot, when you compare the uh, politicians with the general population, um, the politicians are much more religious, you know, on an average basis than than the general population. Mm. I doubt you'd find thirty uh, percent of people in Parliament who have professed no religion. Yep, I expect it's a lot less than that. Yep. We we um, have on the website for the Iron Fist Velvet Glove a, a secular index. So we've tried to look through uh, the history of the various politicians at their statements as to how religious they are. And okay. there's very, very few who have, who have positively come out and said that they're atheist and, and pro-secular. 
uh, an enormous number who are religious and anti-secular, and an enormous number who are just uh, completely silent on the issue, who you just can't tell. Uh, so not many who actually come out and say that they're an atheist. So uh, have a look at the IFVG secular index when you get a chance. Um, yeah, I will. Yeah, so we've got that. Um, sorry, you going to say something? I've done something similar. I went through and just did a spreadsheet on on various topics um, at the time. It's, uh, it was done in 2016 after the last election. Right. At least updated then. And it goes through and looks at their religious belief, their opposition to same-sex marriage and their opposition or whatever to climate change. And also something that interested me at the time was uh, these people are um, you know, not deciding on legislation to deal with uh, negative viewing, and yet large numbers of them have you know, several investment properties. Right. Now, that's, that's a distinct conflict of interest, and again, conflict of interest is something that went out the window when uh, John Howard was around. Right. So you've got and a spreadsheet that, where you, you looked at... Did you do all the members of Parliament at the time, or just some of them? Yeah, or? I did. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, I'd be very interested. Well, get... Is that on the website? Is it? No, no, no. Oh. no. It's something I use for reference. Right. Okay. And, but I can send it to you. Sure. Yeah, that would be very interesting. I'd I'd love to see that. So that's a good one. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, I'm very interested in that. Um, uh, Scott Morrison. Before we leave him, he came out. Uh, the other day, he gave an address at in Albury. Uh, I think it was a Robert Menzies address. So he's certainly referring to Robert Menzies in it a lot. And uh, I'm just going to quote some of his speech here. Um, it was, um, he said, but the one thing we need to remember is keeping those towns alive. It's great to see it raining here in Albury today. I pray for that rain everywhere else around the country. And I do pray for that rain. I'd encourage other, others who believe in the power of prayer, to pray for that rain and to pray for our farmers. Please do that. To everyone else who doesn't like to do that, you just say, good on you guys, and you go well, and think good thoughts for them, or whatever you do. <laughs> oh, it's embarrassing to have... It does make you laugh. It's embarrassing. It does make you laugh. Yeah, yeah. It- it strikes me that um, that prayer is a way for people like Morrison to actually not have to do anything. They use it as an excuse. Oh, you know, it's the same sort of thing the Americans do when the latest uh, massacre occurs. They send thoughts and prayers so they don't have to do anything. Yep, yep. It's a good statement to make. They think that uh, keeps them. Uh, yeah, lets them say something without having to actually do anything. So that's yeah. that's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, when you've got, sorry, go on. When you've got climate change, which is, you know, to some extent is an existential threat to large parts of the planet, um, and you're not doing anything, that's just, to me, that's tantamount to treason. I'd... Uh, I'd I'd change the change the constitution so that treason doesn't have to be within a conflict, because 
you know, some people would have you believe that the, the conflict we're facing now is much worse than any any world wars we've ever had because this is this is going to be a major shift in the human population and the problems we have with um, refugees are going to currently are going to pale into insignificance with what happens when um, climate change really gets going as it seems to have done so so far. Um, there are already climate change um, refugees actually within the United States with sea level rises. People are, people are having to move out of their homes in some of the low-lying areas in the southern parts of the United States, I gather. Yep, yep. I think uh, Houston was in a low-lying area when it, when, it, when, it, when it flooded, and I guess people... Yeah, don't rebuild and don't return. Yeah, yeah. No, some of us rising at three millimetres a year, so it's not a trivial amount. It may sound like it, but um, the rate the um, the Greenland ice cap is melting now is something like uh, you know, one hundred cubic kilometres of ice is melting every year. Right, a hundred cubic kilometres. Yeah, a couple of hundred cubic kilometres. Wow. That's how much it's losing every year. Yeah. I saw in the news the other day that a cargo ship for the first time was scheduled to just uh, run through that that area as a shortcut. The Northwest Passage. Yes. uh, Yeah, that's what... Yeah, hadn't happened in a long time, but that was what they were planning to do as a shortcut. That's what they... That's what the Franklin expedition was trying to do to force a way through the uh, the um, Northwest Passage, um, but they couldn't do it because it was covered in ice. But now they're going to get through, seemingly. Mm. There's a strong correlation between religious belief and f- failure to accept man-made climate climate change. Um, one, one factor is that uh, highly religious people who believe in the second coming of God, tend to think it's always going to happen in their lifetime, that they're quite special and that it's due and they're going to see it. They're just That's one thing. So they tend to, even if they believed in man-made climate change, would say, well, why bother? Because um, Jesus is coming back soon and, you know, it's no, there's no point. <laughs> so that's sort of one thing. But they, they also just, yeah... Uh, just seem to be um, unwilling to accept it. It seems to be a, a real connection or correlation with with religious belief. Yeah, what if they've chosen the wrong god? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's you know, it. it's, it's one of these things that I I often ask religious people, and I get a bit of grief from them, mostly creationists um, online. Well, because I, I'm interested in evolution, so I post a couple of things on that. They, um, they tend to um, remonstrate with me, but the thing that gets me is the absolutely complete, willful ignorance of anything to do with evolution, and they're telling me that I know, and there's I've actually studied it. And they, you can tell by the way they talk, they have no idea. The, the classic question, I've had this probably half a dozen times in the last month, is 
if we evolved from apes, how come there are apes still around? Well, that just shows they don't understand evolution. Yes. Yep. It's, it's really odd. And one of the questions I ask them when they talk about God, I said, well, which God? There's thousands to choose from. So they, they have to be specific with me, which um, I think annoys them. Yeah. There was a statistic out recently about the number. They, they, they looked at first-year biology students at university, sort of a biology 101 class, and yeah. and their thoughts on whether uh, God was responsible for evolution or not. And in recent times, roughly 66% said no. But and everyone was going, what a great statistic that is. But it still meant about 33% were saying yes, which I thought was a lot. It was quite a high number. I, yeah, I it's decreasing. Yes. I mean, the trend was yeah, good, but the actual number was still pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's the way children are indoctrinated. Yeah. Um, and that's what, that's what Morrison was on about uh, when he was talking um, about uh, sending um, his kids to private school so he can inculcate them with his beliefs. Yeah, yeah. He wouldn't want to. Uh, he wouldn't want to be perverted by um, by a state school like I was. Mm. Hey, uh, just moving on. Now, Julie Bishop, are you a fan or not? No, no. I think she's just your average mm. self-aggrandizing politician. Yep. And a hypocrite. Do you, to, do you want to explain the hypocrisy? Well, saying one thing and doing another, basically, or, or in Bishop's case, uh, whining about something um, and then uh, doing the same thing herself. Or in another case, she um, she's now complaining about uh, how behaviour in Parliament is terrible. But she acquiesced and had a go at Julia Gillard uh, uh, when um, she was suffering under the same sort of a program. Yeah. So uh, in your recent blog post, you said that, you know, she now she's on the back bench and she's thinking about making a run maybe in the next parliament or whatever. And she's now talking, uh, being quite outspoken about the appalling behaviour against yeah. women in the parliament. Yet when. Um, Julia Gillard was getting slammed by Tony Abbott. Uh, there was no support at all from uh, from Julie Bishop, and in fact, when Julia Gillard gave her her famous misogyny speech, um, you say in your blog, "Did Bishop say anything?" And the answer is yes, she did. First, she stated that calling Abbott a misogynist was a vile slur and she should apologise to the women in Tony Abbott's life, and she should withdraw it. And then she defended Abbott's personal and political record on women. So good point that it's just how can you stand up now and say all these things when at that moment in history you you failed terribly? Yeah, it's just something that I try to understand. I I don't understand how Julie Bishop could get up and say that in front of people who know better. And she would know that they know better, but she still says it anyway. I just find that impossible to believe. Being a research scientist, you don't get up and talk 
creationist, creationism in front of a, uh, an audience of uh, people who understand um, evolution because you end up looking like a deal um, because they know creationism is horseman you, but you just give up and do it again. It's just extraordinary. I just don't understand it. This is the world we live in. There's no accountability for for spreading bullshit. It's just you can get away yeah. with it incredibly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Um, they can get away with it. And I think that gets down to the recent problems we've had in journalism. Um, you know, Murdoch is perverted journalism. Um, but also there's a lot of pressure on journalists to... Uh, produce stuff, and there are fewer of them, and they have to be more with less. So as a consequence, they they tend to get a bit lazy, I suppose. And I've seen people like Frydenberg and and, um, Morrison and sundry others get up on shows like Insiders, and they just spout absolute rubbish. And it's only occasionally that they're they're um, pulled up on it. Yeah. And as for, as for some of the newspaper articles you read, um, it looks like they're actually concerned more about the political game rather than the actual content of policy. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a big danger for our democracy. Yeah, the personalities involved in the drama more so than the policy. Yeah. I agree, but you know, yeah. maybe that's what maybe that's what people want to hear as well. Like, they, you know, yeah. I mean, you've got eleven hundred Twitter followers, but only thirty-two want to read a, an article that might take five minutes. You know, it's, it, it's yeah, but you know, it's only a, it's only a new thing, so I'm not too worried as long as as long as I can help my own mental health by not sharing it on television. Yeah, but I. I got into this because I want to leave this place a better place than it is now yep. for my kids because I can see that we're going downhill rapidly, not just in this country but throughout the world if we don't do something about climate change. Yep, on a number of levels. Hey, Mr. Blood, yeah. I'd, I'd like to talk more, but our line is not the best. So what um, I'll do is make a commitment to have you on again at a time when we can get a better line and a better... Uh, Skype okay. connection because it's it's not the greatest. So 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 I'll, I'll cut it a little bit shorter than what I planned just because of the audio quality difficulties that we're experiencing. But definitely, I want to stay in touch and get you back on. And so so thanks for coming on to to this episode. Anyway, Mister Blot from the Blot Report. Okay, thanks, Trevor. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon 
and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.